Welcome to Resilience Unraveled. Hi everybody and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast that examines all aspects of personal and organisational resilience. A huge all-encompassing subject that covers the ability to thrive in life by harnessing your cognitive, emotional, physiological and contextual abilities. I share stories from people who have thrived despite remarkable obstacles, as well as highly successful practitioners and experts across a range of topics. And this podcast introduces their amazing stories and expertise, as well as my own reflections, perspectives, strategies and tips, which come from my own synthesis of themes and trends from wider learning. You can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and eBooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Space Unraveled. So, let's get started. Enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome back to Resilience Unraveled. And um, in front of me is Rob Dubin, and uh, he's a man with a a story or two to tell and I'm hoping this is going to be a riveting episode because having just had a few seconds chatting to Rob he's certainly got interesting he's trailed the subjects very excitingly Rob was that fair? <laughs> well so we first hope we can all, provide some interest for your listeners. Brilliant well first of all good evening to you where in the world are you? Uh, I'm in the mountains of Colorado in the United States in a beautiful little ski area and uh, life is good here. And how's the weather when you look outside the window? Well, it's it's very sunny, but it's ski season, so we wish we had a little more snow. Oh, really? Okay. You need some of that um, artificial snow that Chinese have been using up left, right, and center. It, it looks a little hard to ski on for the uh, the bracers over there. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Just well, it's a delight to to meet you. And um, well, let's let's start off by what, tell us a little bit about yourself. What is it, what is it that you actually do at the moment? Well, I was a filmmaker by profession and uh, traveled all over the world making movies for Fortune 500 clients, TV series and television shows and TV commercials. And then uh, when I turned uh, 42, my wife and I kind of changed directions and we uh, sold our home and bought a sailboat. And we spent the next 17 years sailing around the world studying human happiness and human fulfillment and so I've been retired for a long time, but I started speaking on uh, happiness and fulfillment. And when the great resignation hit us so hard in the United States, and I, I know you guys have dealt with it as well in the UK, I realized that the reason people were leaving their jobs is that they were unsatisfied in life, not unsatisfied just in the job. Mm. They started asking these uh, existential questions about whether they were happy. And so what I speak about is exactly that. So I've sort of just uh, started an encore career in my late 60s, speaking to corporations on basically wellness and happiness and fulfillment so they can keep their employees and develop a different type of, uh, of uh, corporate culture than existed pre-pandemic. Is it your view that people are more or less happy than, than in years gone by? Well, I think we've had a couple paradigm shifts. You know, in the old world pre-pandemic, certainly in the United States, and I would say probably the same in the UK, 
we had this notion that if you did all the right things, you went to school, you got an education, you got the job, you got married, you had some kids, and you got the white picket fence, and you got reasonable job promotions along the way, that happiness would just happen to you like by osmosis or like a lightning strike. Mm. And that's not actually the way happiness works. And so in the par in the pandemic, we had this paradigm shift where millions of people started asking themselves questions, not about their work, but about their life. Were they happy in life? Were, was their life show ending up the way they had imagined it when they were younger? And lots and lots of people said, no, it's not. And they resigned in mass numbers. Yeah. And so that was the first paradigm shift. And then the second paradigm shift is in the old world, when people asked questions about their dissatisfaction at work, the HR departments knew that the answer was more compensation and better benefits. Yeah. And so now that they're asking, am I happy in life? HR departments are at a loss. And if compensation and benefits were the solution to the great resignation, it would be over by now. They would have already solved it. And they're still November, December's numbers are as high as they were eight, 10 months ago. People are resigning in droves. And the other second paradigm shift now is that when people ask the question, why am I not happy and how can I be happy? Most people don't know how to make themselves happy. So in the old world, we knew what would make you happy was more money. In the new world, nobody really has the answer because few people actually know how to make themselves happy because we thought it happened when you got the white picket fence and all that stuff. So those are two uh, paradigm shifts that have, that have happened uh, because of the pandemic. So, so how are you defining happiness? What, 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 what do you think, what are you saying it is? Well, uh, I had an interesting personal experience when I finished sailing around the world after these 17 years, a lot of people wanted to hear our stories and we started doing talks and they were kind of travelogy. People wanted to see the pretty pictures, but I wanted to leave people with something more than that. And I had studied uh, this sort of happiness fulfillment. Before we left, we were very involved in the sailing world and we were spending our time with billionaires and millionaires who go after the America's Cup and these very high-end yacht races. Mm -hmm. And then just a short time later, we're sailing to these little tiny islands in the middle of the Caribbean or the Pacific, and we're spending our time with barefoot villagers. Yeah. And some of the people in the billionaire group were happy and some were unhappy. And we saw the same thing in the barefoot villagers. So it clearly is not your circumstances. That got me interested in that. So when we got back and I started doing these these talks, I tried to give people a little more insight onto what made people happy. And I came up with a framework and these things that I taught. And inevitably, after every talk, somebody would ask me if I would coach them or if I could speak to their group. And I started doing some of that. And then I had a little bit of an imposter syndrome. I hadn't studied this. I'm not a psychologist. I hadn't studied any of this stuff in any kind of school program. And so I thought I'd better read up on it. And when I did, I found out there's this fairly new uh, field of positive psychology. It's only yeah. been out for about 15 years or so. But it, for instance, at our uh, Harvard University in the United States, it's the most popular class they've ever had there and it's fairly new. But when I looked at what they were teaching, it was line for line exactly matched up to the things that I had observed in, in my life. 
And then one of the things, the early teachings, uh, uh, the early studies, a woman had found out that she, by studying identical twins, she had found that um, about 40% of our happiness is actually baked into our DNA. And she described the kinds of things, how these people have the happiness and resilience. And I realized immediately when I read this that I was one of those people because I've I've never had uh, worry and overthinking and anxiety. They're really rarely ever a part of my life. So I realized I was one of these 40%, but I also realized that what I knew about myself, I could teach to other people. So I've developed a framework for happiness that I, that I teach for incorporational settings so that employees thrive and then they don't resign. Because when I listened to the great resignation, I started listening, I'm, I'm not in HR, and I started listening just in the general news media. And when I listened to people talk about why they left, 75% of their reasons were nothing to do with the job itself. Yeah. It was to do with their life. And so I realized I had something that I could offer in that setting. Yes. So, so you, are you, the fact that you're teaching people happiness or teaching people to find it or achieve it or discover it or uncover it or whatever it might be. Are you saying happiness is a state or is it a skill? What is it, what is it you're thinking it is? Excellent question. It's actually both. The happiness first. So we have this idea that when XYZ happens, I will be happy. When I get the promotion, when you know we have the baby, when the kid gets to college, when XYZ happens, we will be happy. And that is true in a small sense, but that kind of happiness only lasts a short time. I mean, look, we all, we get happy when we buy a new car, but three or four years later, we want a new car or a bigger house or a bigger nice whatever. Yeah. And so we get sucked into this idea that when XYZ happens, I will be happy because it's partially true. But in fact, real happiness is just a decision you make to be happy. And then you do certain things, which I talk about and Part of them are habits, I would say, that take a little bit of time, like any habit, to become habitual. Yeah. And then others are, are skills that you could practice tomorrow morning. But when you practice some of these skills for a month or two months, then they become habits and they become part of who you are. And if you follow my framework for 30 or 60 or 90 days, happiness is, becomes who you are. So, so you sort of say happiness is a choice. It, it's a there. I actually break it down. I have I use the acronym live happy. And so the L I V E those four items and I can describe them are traits of happiness They're sort of habits of happiness, if you will. Sure. And then the H A P P Y the second part of that acronym. Those are what I call habits or skills of happiness. And those are simple things. I'll just share one with you right off the top, which is the most easy for everybody to do is live in a state of gratitude. So I tell people, we give them an exercise in our program that at the end, toward the end of every day, spend five minutes and write down six things that you're grateful for that day. And they can be really small, simple things. I'm grateful for a hot cup of tea. I'm grateful that I got a parking place near the front door. I'm grateful that my kid had a fun day at school. And so you, you have to write down six things you're happy for. And it may only take you a minute to write all six, 
but the key is you have to spend five minutes on it. So you have to spend five minutes focusing on why those things make you feel happy. You get in touch with how you feel about that. And you do that every day for a month and it becomes habit forming. And then you'll probably, whether you do it in writing or not, you make it part of your mental process of every day and you're getting in touch with some of your happiness. So that's just one simple skill people can start doing today. It takes five minutes toward the end of every day. So how do we know when we are happy? Well, it's not the uh, rainbows and unicorns kind of happiness. It's a deep contentment that you know your life is going the way you want it. And that gets back to the great resignation because that's the question people asked. Is my life what I thought it was going to be? And... Uh, so I spend most of my waking hours in feeling love for my wife. We're going on our 40th year of marriage, feeling grateful for my other relationships and grateful for the life I have. So the, my predominant emotional states are love and happy and gratitude. And that's sort of the direct answer to your question of how we know when we're happy. Our experience of life is our emotions so that's how we describe our experience of life whether you're happy or sad or angry or worried or ridden with anxiety those are the emotions that become our life and that's important to say isn't it because in the original positive psychology thing the original description of emotions there was never a positive emotion and it was added in And one of the descriptions originally was that it was the removal of all the negative emotions, which were the emotions. And it was what was left. And it sort of cobbled together the word joy out of it. But uh, and then happiness was a tricky one because happiness was a state rather than an emotion. And it all gets very confused after that, of course. Um, But I I like what you're saying here. And I totally agree. I have to say I totally agree. I often think we have to mine the happiness we have it's you know you go into a situation you discover the happiness within it you don't actually wait for it to sort of you know smack you across the side of the head it is a state of mind it is a it is a set of choices I, I totally agree with you but you've got me intrigued what does the v stand for in live happiness because um i mean it's such an unusual letter to have in there how have you managed to construct <laughs> you know, sometimes you have to contort these acronyms, don't? And I'm, I'm just—it's like my own acronym for um, resilience, which is ropes. And we had to create some—you know—we had to fit the uh, the words into the uh, into the acronym. So I'm giving you a good bit of time to discover what the V is. So what, what's the V stand I'm for? I'm going to go through all of them, and then oh, I'll come on, back okay. to the V. So oh, the T's. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, we can't start in the middle of the alphabet. We are in the middle of the uh, acronym. So the live, it's live happy. And the L is learn optimism. Yeah. And we can come back to that. The I is invent your new story. Okay. And we can, we, I come back to each one of them. The V is to value yourself. Okay, good. Yeah. And the E is exert emotional control. Yeah. Then the second word happy is uh, the H is happiness is a decision. A is a daily gratitude, yeah. which we talked about. P is practice mindfulness, which is non-judgment and uh, observing observing without judging and living in the present moment. It's those two things. Yeah. The P is practice contribution. And the Y is your dreams. Okay. Oh, I like the way you put Y is your dreams. That's very clever. 
<laughs> yes, Otherwise, it would have been deep. One of, one of the most key things for happiness, as you know, is progress, some kind of progress in your life. Purpose, and yeah. so I do an when I do these uh, workshop, these day long workshops with corporations, the last half of it, half of the entire workshop is what I call a dream harvesting, mm -hmm. where people just brainstorm every dream they want to do and be and accomplish in their life, both personal and career goals. And then we work through a process of setting a timeline, which are the goals you want to accomplish immediately once some are one to three years or more than three years. And then we make a timeline and an action process to get through them. We do some NLP stuff that uh, makes the goal very real to you. And then I use something that we did when we sailed around the world about breaking through fear. Because when I tell people we sailed around the world, 90% of the people's first response is, oh, I'd love to do that, but I'd be afraid. Mm -hmm. And that's true of most people, most people's dreams whatever you want to dream in your life has probably some fear standing between you and accomplishing the dream. So we talk about how to very specific strategies for overcoming fear. Mm -hmm. So if you want, we can go back to the V or go to whichever one you think is no, no, most no, interesting. Fine. I mean, I mean, bizarrely enough, we're here to talk about resilience today, but uh, you've got me so fascinated by happiness. We've, we've got ourselves sidetracked onto that, but I mean, I am absolutely with you on, um, on this subject and I love the way you've talked about it. I think that's so important. And I think a lot of people um, mistake happiness. They they sort of they sort of expect it to arrive, don't they? And there's, there's something about um, perhaps the way we're educated these days that we're we're sort of almost trained to be slightly, um, but not unhappy. I don't mean it like this, but um, dissatisfied with life almost. Where where we're brought up to to. We're at, at one level, we're, we're taught to question everything, devalue everything, and uh, in a sense, criticize everything. And then on the, other, on the other hand, we're also taught that there's, there's a very little sense of purpose. And I think, um, you know, I like the way you're sort of devaluing, you're taking both of those different things, you're you know, accelerating purpose and you know, depressing the other side. I think that's really important, isn't it? Because gra gratitude is all about satisfaction, is it fulfillment, such like. I mean, the old expression of, happiness was satisfaction and pleasure and um there's no there's nothing wrong with a bit of pleasure is there i mean that's what love is really isn't it that's you know i think it was aristotle i don't remember the exact quote but that's sort of the being the meaning of all purpose of all life is to make yourself happy yeah. and i have uh happy since i've been a little child i've only had one real goal and one real rule that i follow as i go to achieve my goal and if you remember when you were a 10 year old boy in that first day of summer vacation and you had a you know, you woke up on that first day of summer vacation, you had a million dreams that you were going to accomplish over the summer and nothing was going to stand in your way. Well, I still am that little boy mm. and I still live that way. And so my one goal is to make myself happy. My one rule is I can't hurt anybody else along the way to achieving my own happiness. And literally those are kind of the two uh, pillars of how I've lived my life. But I can tell you a story that maybe will lead to our resilience conversation, uh, if you want to go there. When uh, this happened quite a long time ago, but my wife and I, we live in the Colorado Rockies, and we were on a backcountry ski trip to a backcountry hut. And halfway there, the weather turned really, really terrible. 
It ended up being one of the worst storms in Colorado history. It stormed, it snowed to 10 feet in the next five days. And there were avalanches all over the state of Colorado, places that are normally safe. I mean, the water supply for the entire town of Aspen, where all the movie stars hang out in the wintertime, that was all threatened. People were trapped in their cars near Vail Ski Area. Wow. So it was one of the biggest storms in the state's history. And we missed the cabin we were headed for in the storm. We couldn't see more than a few feet. And we ended up spending five nights out in the wilderness with no tents or protection. And the uh, it spawned this rescue, the largest rescue that had ever happened in Colorado. And it went viral. So the news media picked it up across the country and millions and millions of people were watching the news day by day as hope for us getting out dwindled. Most people rarely survive more than one or two nights when they get stuck out. And so we were on the fifth night. The sheriff decided they were going to call off the search for us. Wow. Uh, the coroner, coroner said we, they would recover our frozen bodies the next spring and uh, called my parents and told them that uh, we were listed as missing, presumed dead, and they would find us in the springtime. Wow. And we ended up getting out of the wilderness that same day that, that they, they announced that toward the end of the day we got out. And because this had gone viral across the country, the first phone call I got was from the president of the United States congratulating us on our survival. Wow. And over the next few days, I was on all of our morning talk show, TV shows and evening shows. We were on the front page of every newspaper. It's CNN had picked it up. People in Japan saw the story. And so for a few days, we were in focus of this media circus. And being in the wilderness was actually only the start of our challenge because those endless nights shivering in the snow had taken a toll on my wife and her feet and her fingers were frozen, completely frostbitten. Her feet and her fingers were coal black and hard as a rock. Her fingers looked like you could snap them off like a pretzel stick. And the third day in the hospital, the doctors pulled me aside and told me that they were gonna have to amputate both of her feet at the arch of the foot. And they would wait a few days till that surgery was over. And then they would have to amputate all of her fingers. And I went home that night and I walked in the door and I saw a pair of my wife's shoes by the door and I just collapsed on the floor in tears. And I spent the entire night just laying on the floor in a fetal positioning position, wondering what our life was going to be like in the future. But then I woke up completely transformed, feeling as powerful as I had any, ever felt in my life. So in a matter of a few hours, I had gone from feeling the weakest, most powerless I had been in my life. My wife was going to have this terrible fate of losing her feet and fingers, and I could do nothing about it. And I woke up feeling super powerful. I raced to the hospital before the doctors could tell her anything. And I told her she was going to have a complete recovery. And we started focusing on having a complete recovery. And we decided that was going to be the outcome. Mm. And a couple hours later, the doctors came in to, to for this prep her for surgery. And we refused to sign the papers authorizing the surgery. Wow. So we had a standoff with the doctors. And I won't go through all of what happened, but 
she was in the hospital for 21 days and then recovering for months and months and months afterward. But a year later, we were down in Cancun, Mexico, and she was dancing in the sand with two feet and 10 fingers and nine and a half toes. And then a year later after that, we decided to take off and we then spent the next 17 years sailing around the world. Wow. And so there were three phases of what we could call resiliency that we went through in that story. The first phase was the resiliency that it took when we were out in the storm for five days because we were with another, there was a group of us and one of the women who was much stronger physically than my wife mentally collapsed and became a victim and had a victim mentality and it was all we could do to get her out alive. So there was that bit of resilience. Then there was the resilience that we had to have when we decided to that she was going to have a complete recovery and we focused on it and we didn't say we will be happy when she recovers. We said we're going to be happy now and we're going to plan for the future now, even though we're had this sort of, you know, the amputations hanging over our head. So there was that kind of resiliency that we had to sustain for months and months and months. It took her a, a full year before we knew she wasn't going to have any major amputations. So there was that kind of resiliency. And then the third resiliency was um, the story that we told ourselves going forward. So when it was all said and done, we could have told ourselves a story of, well, you know, we should live a safer life. Life is dangerous. We don't want bad things to happen. Next time we go cross country skiing, we should just go to the golf course on the edge of town where we see people ski. Or we could decide, my gosh, we've, we did what the experts said couldn't be done in surviving. We did what the experts couldn't, said couldn't be done in saving your feet. We can accomplish massive things. So let's go tackle sailing around the world. Those were two possible stories from the yeah. end bit of resilience. It, it is interesting when you deal with a medical profession, how many times you hear that story of, I guess it's that old thing about a man with a hammer sees every problem as a nail, don't they? And so if you go to hospital, the only solution is a medical one. Uh, and I'm not into the happy clappy sort of thing, but there is there is definitely something about having the time to fix yourself, isn't there? Having the time to regenerate and repair and renew and all that sort of stuff. And it's um, you just wonder how many... Op- in fact, David Haskamp, who came on to this programme, was to, uh, on this show, was talking about back surgery... And he said basically 25% of back surgeries are effective and he's now set up a new practice that is against cutting people and against surgeries and using different forms of treatment such like to help people. And he, he would say as an orthopedic surgeon that the power of the mind is very rarely harnessed in hospital. Very true. My father was a doctor, so I'm very much, I mean, I grew up in the medical profession. The first jobs I had when I was in high school were working in the hospital. And so yeah. I'm, I definitely buy into the medical profession. I'm not, and I'm yeah. not into yeah, very too. much holistic stuff, but uh, we've studied a lot with Tony Robbins. He's been one of our mentors for years. And we had done a fire walk with Tony and I don't know how that works, but we had done it. And we actually, when the doctors came in to have us sign the paper, one of the things I said to them was, no, we've done a fire walk. I don't know how it works, but it worked. Mm -hmm. And we think the mind and the body can do things that we don't always understand. And so 
we're going to, this is going to be our approach. And, you know, after a little bit of a standoff with the doctors, they supported us. They still gave her excellent treatment, which is in fact what saved her feet. Because if she had gotten gangrene, they would have had to amputate and I would have had to say yes immediately. And that was my, the doctor and I, after some conversations and a little bit of loggerheads, we came to that agreement. And uh, they, they did save her feet. It was what they did and what she did. And as I said, Tony Robbins was a friend of ours, and Tony called her in the hospital, talked to her about how to think about that. And what Tony had taught us, what he said to her, the fact that we didn't say we're going to be happy when she heals. We said we're going to be happy now. We're going to focus on this compelling future of going sailing and climbing mountains and living the life we want. And that's what, uh, you know, certainly helped her heal her feet. Yes. Um, yes. And you said something else as you were going through that conversation, which just, it's, it's a, uh, I know what it was. Seth Godin talks about the dip and the very, and lots and lots of people come into, onto this program and, and talk about the fact that you hit rock bottom. And that's what you come back from. That's where you have the revelations. That's where you have the, the new sense of determination. And sometimes you have to recognize in resilience terms, you've got to be able to hit the bottom in order to be able to bounce back. And some people sort of don't allow themselves to hit the bottom. They sort of hide away from it or they run away from the challenge, don't they? I mean, in a sense, giving up and saying, yeah, you know, let's just lose your feet. You know, in a sense, that's giving up. I mean, I know maybe that's too contentious, but you've got you've got to allow yourself to be distraught don't you you find it with addicts you find it with all sorts of different people people that make life changes have gone through a real dip yeah i would certainly agree that uh with that basic premise i mean i have a friend who's uh his he does a beautiful ted talk and it's called from addict to ceo and he became the ceo of the treatment facility that treated him and he's got a really powerful story about how he hit bottom and i wouldn't say i don't feel like i ever hit bottom it was just that i felt completely powerless you know when they told me i mean it was only a matter of hours it was 8 p.m when they told me they were going to have to amputate and i went home and i collapsed and this is only a couple days after the five days when we'd been out surviving in the storm And I was only, I wouldn't say I hit rock bottom, but I felt powerless. Mm. And I think there's a a term you're probably familiar with it in your profession. I don't know if your listeners are, but locus of control. And when I started doing these uh, talks on happiness and fulfillment, one of my mentors, who's a a very well-known speaker, a British gentleman, lives in Canada now named Nicholas Boothman, and he's got multiple best-selling books and he said you know you're only going to reach half of your audience and i had been doing these talks before to people who came to hear me speak about happiness and fulfillment so they were bought into it but when i speak to a corporation it's obviously all kinds of people and he said you're only going to reach half of your audience because their locus of control which the locus is the location of your control so if you don't believe you can control your life you don't believe you can change it. If you believe life happens to you, you don't then believe in the basic concept of self-improvement, self-destiny that you you can change. And so that's really an important part of what I talk about is uh, how you can change your locus of control. And I'll give just a quick example of 
Uh, I was in Phoenix, Arizona, which is out in the desert, and so the roads are very big and wide, and the streets are really long, and you drive fairly fast. And I was with a woman there who I was doing some work with a company, and this woman and I were commuting to her office in my car every day. And I was there's this street where you know the traffic goes about 45 miles an hour, and I'm driving along it. And just as I got to each light, the light turned green, and we just proceeded along. And she said wow, you're so lucky. All the lights just turn green when you get to them. And I looked at her kind of astonished. She said, I drive this road every day and it, the lights are never green for me. And I looked at her and I said, well, I know that if I go outside of rush hour and if I drive 42 miles an hour, the lights are all timed and they'll all be green. Mm. And so in her life, she's had a whole lot more red lights than I have in my life because she thought she doesn't she thinks life happens to her yeah. and i see that i can do things to change the control of my life yeah. so if people can move their locus of control from external to more internal they can then go to make that step of i'm going to decide to be happy and then they can do the things that like the gratitude practice that i described that then make you happy and the more of that you do it's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy in a virtuous cycle brilliant Oh, I totally agree. Uh, uh, you and I can sit here and agree all night, and I think we probably shouldn't because I need to be a bit more respectful of your time. But um, if people would like to get a hold of you, Rob, how would they do that? Uh, I have a website. Uh, it's just my name, robdubin.com. And uh, most of it is directed towards what I teach with corporations, but there's a few PDFs there that people might find interesting. I always get questions when I talk about the fact that we retired early and went sailing. And so there, if they, if you go to the frequently asked questions page, there's this happiness framework that we, there's a, I'm sorry, if you go to the frequently asked questions page, there's a form they can fill out and they'll get an email with links to multiple documents. One of them is the happiness framework. Another one would be something that ha our relationship, because a boat is a kind of a pressure cooker and what worked for us for 17 years to live together on a boat and be married for 40 years total. And then there's some financial strategies, mindset about money and, and things like that that helped us retire when we were only four, in our 40s. I'm guessing you're on LinkedIn and all sorts of other bits and pieces of- uh... I am on LinkedIn, same thing, just my name, Rob Dubin. Very good. Uh, well, Rob, it's been an absolute joy to, to be with you this evening and uh, I'm fascinated in your own journey from, um, you know, your background, going through the whole positive psychology curve. That's really gratifying to hear. And um, thank you for spending time with us. You've got shared a remarkable story and some really useful tips. So thank you. Glad to be able to help you excite your uh, listeners with uh, getting positive and getting happy. Yeah, absolutely. And let's choose that happiness state in the future. Hi everybody, I hope you found that episode useful and interesting. Feedback is always welcomed and if you are in the mood to subscribe to us or even leave a comment on iTunes or Stitcher, that would be amazing. If you want to suggest ideas or even people you would like me to interview, then reach out to us at qedod.com forward slash contact. As I said earlier, you can go to qedod.com forward slash podcast for show notes or follow the links. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, 
you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Unraveled. I look forward to being in your ear next time around. Take care.